Hi everyone. Unfortunately the recording um, for Sunday morning didn't work for the first half of the sermon, uh, so I'm going to attempt to re-record it for you now. Just bear in mind that there's no congregation reacting to what I'm saying. It's not that the jokes aren't funny, it's just that I'm doing this on my own in my office. So I want you to think back to your school days. Some of us, that's uh, just a couple of years ago, for others that's much longer. During your school years, I wonder, were you a good student or a bad student? Put your hand up if you ever gave the teacher a made-up excuse as to why you didn't complete your homework. Come on now, confession is good for the soul. Okay, I won't make anyone reveal their excuses this morning, but I did have a little search online and found a couple of good examples. One student managed to convince their mother to be a co-conspirator in their bid to get away with having not done their homework. The parent in question excused the pupil from completing their homework because they felt it was more beneficial for them to experience the natural beauty of a particularly breathtaking sunset. Does anyone remember that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Another student informed the teacher that their uncle had been a contestant on the show the previous evening and they'd been asked to sit by the phone all night in case a call came from Chris Tarrant and the phone a friend lifeline. Now we've all heard the my dog ate it excuse, but this student blamed their missing work not on the dog but on a turkey. Apparently the hapless bird had ran headlong into their garage door, rendering it unusable and causing the family car to become trapped inside where, of course, the student had left their homework. Points for imagination on that one. Another student claimed to have done their homework, but while swinging their school bag earlier that morning, the strap had snapped and sent the bag flying onto the back of a passing lorry, which, of course, drove off. This one was actually confirmed as true by another member of staff, to much laughter, later on that day in the staff room. Finally, rather than claiming their work had been stolen, lost, eaten or otherwise damaged, one pupil told their teacher that they asked their mother to check their work before they handed it in, only for their mother to be so impressed that she promptly took the paper away to have it framed. Actually, I was given an even better excuse after the service on Sunday. Um, this occasion, the student was too sad to hand in their homework because the previous evening their mother had uh, sucked their budgerigar up the hoover. I think that should have been the winner. But I wonder how many of those excuses were actually true. I wonder if you've given any better excuses in your time. Well, throughout this series, we've been looking at God's amazing grace. We've been telling you that you can't earn or merit acceptance with God, no matter how hard you try but that grace means God offers you restoration with himself on the basis of a free, undeserved gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it, buy it, perform for it, or merit it. And most importantly, we've been telling you that grace means that no amount of trying will make God love us more, and no amount of sinning will make God love us less. But there's a problem with this statement. If no amount of sinning will make God love us less, then well, why do we need to stop sinning? Surely grace gives us the ultimate excuse. I mean, I can act however I want, sin as much as I like, and God will love me the same, right? So the question I want to answer this morning is this. Can I accept God's grace and carry on sinning? Can I accept his unmerited favor and love towards me and live however I please, even if that's contrary to what God wants for me, even if that's something that I know 
displeases him? Now I realize in order to answer that question, first I need to tackle the, the smaller question hidden within. The first part of that question, can I accept God's grace? So let's deal with that first. We've been telling you over the past few weeks that grace is offered as a free gift to all, regardless of what you've done or uh, how you've been. Last week, Steve used the example of Jeffrey Dahmer, the notorious cannibal, the worst of the worst, who came to faith in prison. And actually, even Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, described himself as the worst of sinners in his letter to Timothy. But even though grace is offered to all, it's not accepted by all. You see, in order to accept God's grace, you have to want it. And in order to want it, you have to know that you need it. If you don't believe that you need God's forgiveness, then you cannot receive his grace. The Christian author C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The demand that God should forgive such a man while he remains what he is is based on the confusion between condoning and forgiving. To condone an evil is simply to ignore it, to treat it as if it were good, but forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered for it to be complete. A man who omits no guilt can accept no forgiveness. Let me give you an example. In the Bible we read that there were two men who were sentenced to die alongside Jesus. Both of them were to be crucified, one on either side of him. The NIV describes the men as rebels, and the King James Version calls them thieves. Your version may say robbers, but the exact nature of their crimes is unknown. Given their punishment, it's likely that they were violent men. But don't forget, grace is available to all. Both of these men were potential recipients of God's grace, but it is only extended to one of them. Luke records what happens for us. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's mocking Jesus. Verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Did you catch it? The rebel knows that he's guilty. We're getting what our deeds deserve. He knows that he needs God's grace and forgiveness. And then he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answers him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, in order to receive grace, first we need to understand why we need it. It was abundantly clear to this criminal here at the end of his life, knowing full well that he had lived out his days in a way that displeases God. That's why he says to the other criminal, don't you fear God. And I think sometimes perhaps we live under the assumption that we're basically fine. We're good people. We've got no major flaws, you know. Why on earth would we need God's grace? I mean, come on, most of you have not even made up an excuse for forgetting homework. Actually, I think it's a, a bit of a misconception that there are good people and bad people. In fact, um, in the Bible, in the book of Romans, uh, Paul writes that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think the distinction is not between good and bad, but between those who acknowledge their wrongs and those who don't. And it was the rebel who was admitting, who was willing to admit his wrongs, the rebel who knew he needed grace that received it. 
Let me give you uh, another example from the life of Jesus. <clears throat> this time it's taken from uh, John's Gospel account in chapter 8. And the scene takes place in the temple courts. Jesus is in the middle of teaching a large group of people. And they're all thoroughly engaged in what he's saying. Listening intently. And then he's interrupted by a group of Pharisees. Dressed in their religious finery and full of their own piousness and self-importance. And two of them are carrying with them a woman. A woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. As her symbol of her shame, she would have been stripped to her waist and thrust before Jesus. She had nothing left to hide. She was laid bare for all to see. John says that they stood her in plain sight of everyone, the crowd included. And then the Pharisees reveal their agenda. Teacher, they begin. Now, teacher's a, a sign of respect. But make no mistake, the Pharisees had no respect for Jesus. They brought this woman before him for one reason and one reason only, to trap him in his words. I'd imagine they sneered as they said it. Teacher. They go on. This woman is caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses in the law gives orders to stone such a person. What do you say? Now you see, as a Jewish rabbi, rabbi or teacher, Jesus would need to come out in support of the law of Moses. Else they'd label him a heretic, denounce his teaching, and perhaps even arrest him themselves. However, Roman law prevented Jewish people from carrying out their own executions. That's why they had to go to Pontius Pilate when Jesus was crucified sometime later. So the question becomes, will Jesus obey the law of Moses, or will he obey the law of the land, the Roman rule? It was a very clever trap. But of course, Jesus does neither. Instead, he stoops down and starts to write with his finger in the dirt. It's the only time in the gospel that, Gospels, all four, that Jesus has ever recorded as writing anything. Um, and of course, he writes it in the dirt, so it was quickly washed away. And unfortunately, and rather annoyingly, John doesn't record for us what he wrote. So we have no idea. Early on in John's Gospel, Jesus has another encounter with a woman who was also caught in adultery. And on that occasion, he reveals her sin to her. But this woman's sin was already revealed. She was expecting death. Some have speculated that actually what Jesus wrote was the sins of the Pharisees. Trying to distract them from their accusations and point them to their own failings. But we don't know. John says they keep on badgering him. They keep on asking him the question. It wasn't going away. They were excited to finally trap Jesus. He doesn't know the answer. And you see to the crowd, the onlookers, the Pharisees, were the good guys. Well, we have a different perspective today because a lot of us know the Bible and we, we know their agenda. But to them, they were the religious elite. They were, they were good. They were good people. And the woman was the sinner, the baddie. And there's our two categories, the good and the bad. Until Jesus stands up. He stood up and he said, the sinless one among you go first, throw the stone. And then he returns to writing in the dirt. He doesn't even bother to look to see what they're going to do. He knew there wasn't one among them that was sinless. And what Paul says, all have sinned. Only those that were willing to admit it and deny it. And faced with no other choice, they turn and walk away, not willing to face their own shame until only the guilty woman remained and then she was offered grace. Jesus said, where are they? Does no one condemn you? 
He says, neither do I. You see, in order to receive grace, our sins need to be laid bare. They need to come to the forefront. In the story Steve told last week about the prodigal son, it wasn't until the son felt the full weight of his rebellion against his father until he realized how far he'd come that he was able to turn back and receive grace. And the, true, the same is true for us. So in answer to the first bit of the question, can I accept God's grace? I think only when we realize that we need it. Otherwise, we're still in rebellion to God. We're still like that first criminal hurling insults in God, not feeling the full weight of the reality of the situation that we're in. Not understanding that we're going to face God one day and be accountable for the way that we've lived. Or like the Pharisees trying to catch Jesus out, picking religion apart and actually just missing God in the midst of it. So the second part of the question, can I carry on sinning? Well, the story of the woman caught in adultery doesn't end with Jesus letting her off her sin. He has a final piece of advice for her. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Do not continue to live the way that you have been living. Jesus knows that the woman, having apparently gotten away with it, will be tempted to do it again. Because that's what we're like, aren't we? When we get away with things, we find ourselves doing them more and more. Paul deals with this issue extensively uh, in his letters to the Romans. And we're going to just have a look at this this chapter together now. Uh, We're in Romans 6, if you have a Bible with you and you'd like to, to turn to it. Now, Romans 6 begins this way. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Essentially, we may as well carry on sinning because it's more opportunity for grace. The more stuff we do wrong, the more God is going to forgive us, so everything's going to be wonderful. And then Paul immediately answers his own question at the start of verse 2. He says, by no means. No way, Jose. Not on your life. Get out of town. It's not happening. Not today. Not ever. No chance. There's not even a pause for effect. He's straight in. No No, no, no. And then he builds his case. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul starts with this claim that Christians have died to sin. What exactly does it mean? Does it mean that Christians don't sin anymore? I'm not sure that's entirely true. I mean, I definitely occasionally have a slip-up, you know, like every day. Um, I think my sin is less like a a corpse and more like a zombie just sort of walking along beside me. It certainly feels like that sometimes. There's an old story of an African convert to Christianity who was given a, a position of trust by a missionary Uh, and violated it when he stole something. And the missionary said to him, why did you take something that didn't belong to you? And he replied, it wasn't I who stole, it was the grandfather in the boat. It was his way of saying, it's my old sinful nature, cropping up again. 
And besides, John writes that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it can't mean that we've stopped sinning. Maybe it means that we no longer enjoy sin. I don't think that's entirely true either. The reality is sin is very attractive. You only need to flick through a magazine or spend five minutes on the internet and there's everything to appeal to our lust and our greed and our envy and our pride. Although we may end up broken and bruised afterwards if we claim that we didn't enjoy or have fun sin while we're doing it, I think we'd be lying. So what is Paul talking about? Well, the next thing he does is he reminds the Roman Christians of their baptism. And we're going to have a baptism service soon. Steve mentioned it earlier on. Um, and if you're, you're interested, please do speak to us about that. But the early Christians practiced baptism in very much the same way that we do in this church. It involved going into a river or uh, a pool and being submerged completely and then brought back up again. And while you were going under the water, it was supposed to signify death and burial. And in that, you identified with Jesus' death and burial. And then when you come back out of the water, it symbolizes Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection into a new life. We become a new creation through our baptism. So essentially, Paul is saying that because we have this new life, then we should try and live in the reality of it. He actually rephrases uh, what he said in in verse 11. He he says it a different way. He says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in God and Christ Jesus. And the word count is important because um, it means that we hold a certain view or opinion. In other words, Paul is commanding us to change the way we think about sin and about God in particular. And the command is in the present tense, which means that we need to do it again and again and again and again several times a day, perhaps. You see, when we encounter God's grace, we're not just forgiven, but we're introduced to a new way of living. And if we're going to start living out that life, living in the reality of our new life, then we need to count ourselves as dead to sin. The theologian John Owens once wrote that his biggest challenge as a pastor was persuading non-Christians that they were slaves to sin and Christians that they were dead to sin. If we receive grace by admitting it, then we need to live in it by becoming dead to it. Paul continues, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. See, if we're going to become dead to sin, we cannot allow it to have a hold in our lives. We need to deal with the zombie beside us. We need to deal with the grandfather in the bones, as the African man put it. And we need to stop offering parts of our body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Another translation from the Greek word that uses their instruments is weapons. That's another possible translation. Offering yourself as weapons of wickedness. And I think essentially Paul is saying before you received grace, you know, you were used to doing this, offering various parts of yourself to weapons of wickedness. Your mouth may have been used for gossip and lies and slander and your eyes could have been used for lust or greed or hatred and your hands for violence, theft and malice. But now we should offer the same parts of weapons of righteousness 
We can use our mouths to offer love and grace to others. We can use our eyes to identify the needs of those around us. And we can use our hands to build up and give support to others. Once we accept that we are dead to sin, every part of us can be repurposed for God's glory. Hallelujah. Amen. Peter puts it this way uh, in his uh, first Peter 1. Verse 13 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed that he's coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. You see, God gives us grace, not that we may go on sinning, but that we may begin to fulfill his purposes for us. To live the way we were created to be as holy children of God. It's a tall order. And maybe you say, well, I don't want to be holy. That sounds like a lot of work for one thing. (laughs) Well, not really. Paul concludes chapter 6 this way. And this this is the punch in his argument, really. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul is saying that you're going to serve one master or the other. One leads to death, and the other leads to righteousness, or right standing with God. And slavery is perhaps an outdated analogy for us here. I think what he's saying is that before we were offered grace, um, we, we, we were used to being tied to sin. We were attached to it, addicted to it, unable to stop. It took control of our, our heart's desires. And he's saying unless you commit to this new life that you've been given, it will do it again. I think one of the biggest masters of people today is pornography. Now, I used the P word. Let's talk about porn for a minute. It's a sin that appears very attractive. It's something that's been very much normalized in our society. In fact, it's the case that you're considered odd if you don't partake. And so we give in to temptation. It's not difficult. Temptation is everywhere. And we think it's just one little look. I'm just curious. It's a one-off. I'm not hurting anyone. But when we do that, it grabs a hold. It gets inside and demands more of us. It's like a rabbit hole that goes deeper and deeper. And it rules in our free time. And the more it's indulged, the worse it gets. Until you're rearranging your life to accommodate it. And its mastery is complete. Now there are hundreds of thousands of people that cannot maintain a normal, healthy relationship with another because of their addiction to pornography. It's getting worse. Yeah, this is something that's ingrained now, particularly with our young people. <laughs> We've got to look out for them because it's ruining people. And it's a good example of how a sin can take hold and have mastery over us. It's not the only example. There are plenty of others, plenty of other sinful desires. Greed, where nothing is ever enough. You know, you just want more and more and more. Or jealousy, where your whole life is defined by what other people have and you don't. Or perhaps hatred, where your anger and malice towards others becomes the thing that drives you. And there are more still. But here's the thing. If we dabble in sin and don't count it as dead, 
It's amazing how quickly it will take hold and drag us back to the place where we no longer feel we need God's grace. i just read that again. If we dabble in sin and don't count it as dead, it's amazing how quickly it will take hold of us and drag us back to the place where we no longer feel we even need God's grace. When we encounter grace, we need to offer ourselves to a new master and we need to stick with him. Because, yes, God will forgive us when we mess up. Of course he will. There's always more grace. But if we allow sin to rule, we may not be interested. Paul finishes his chapter like this. He says, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness, leading to holiness. What benefit did you reap uh, reap at the time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can I accept God's grace and carry on sinning? By no means. You've been down that path before, and all it's ever done is lead you away from God. Don't let God's gift of grace go to waste by living apart from him and your purpose, his purpose for your life. You'll miss out and you'll just find yourself further and further away. I wonder if the band would like to come and join us. In a minute, we're going to finish with a a time of worship to God. And I would feel remiss if during that time I didn't offer the opportunity to you for prayer. If some of the things that I've been speaking about this morning have spoken to you. And actually you get the sense that maybe it was God that was speaking. Or maybe you've realised for the first time today that you need God's grace and forgiveness. You've got to that point in your life where suddenly you think, everything's not as it should be. I'm not living the way I should be living. I know it's wrong. And you're just at that point where you want to receive God's grace for the first time. If that's you, we'd love to pray for you. Or perhaps you've been indulging in your old sinful nature. And you just get the sense that it's beginning to take hold. It's beginning to have its mastery over you again. And you can feel it tugging. And you're feeling yourself just less and less interested in the things of God. And he's slipping away as your Lord and Master. We'd love to pray for you if that thing in your life is just becoming too prominent again. We'd love to pray for you.